the city of Ephesus, um, we might not know much about it, but I want you to picture the scene. There are at least 20,000 people, for instance, that can pack into a theater. I mean, they can do entertainment on another level. They've got one of the seven wonders of the world. The ancient one is Artemis, the temple, um, uh, the statue of her just used to look over this whole city, this portside city that people would stare at it. It was a melting pot of culture, wealth, education. It's in modern-day Turkey today, and part of the history is that this once flourishing city had its harbor slowly but surely silt up. In other words, ships could no longer get in. It got rocked by some earthquakes, and now it is a ruined city. But by the time we're reading it in the early um, decades of, uh, I mean, in the early uh, BCs, it is flourishing. Paul, as you'll remind yourself from last week, has got deep affections for this church. He, he spent three years there. He raised up Timothy, and he wrote Timothy two particular letters while he was leading the church there to try and set him up for success. And now he's writing this book to the same people that he loves. What's lovely about it is that he's not correcting anything. There isn't some major catastrophe going on. And remember, in the book of Acts, we were told that he taught them already the whole counsel of God. He's already spent a lot of time with them. So in many ways, what he's doing now is he's saying, okay, guys, I'm never going to see you again probably. I'm in prison. I don't know how many more days I've got. I want to give you the distilled kind of best of. I want, I want to get you to really understand this so that you're grounded in a way that is, that is solid, that you've got the essence of this faith. I suppose a, a modern-day equivalent, if I think about it, is that particular genre, if you go to a bookstore, of, of almost like the last lecture. You know that book of, a, of the lecture that was passing away, and he got to go give one last lecture. Or the surgeon who wrote the book, uh, When Breath Becomes Air. It's kind of that distilled wisdom of like, okay, I, I can see the ends coming soon, and I want you to get this. So we're going to read the text together, what we're going to cover today. It's all on one page for your convenience, and, uh, and let's read it together. Paul writing from prison to those he loves in Ephesus. Paul, verse 1, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Thanks be to God for his word to us this morning. Now, remember, Paul is writing with an unblemished view. He's not trying to correct anything. He's trying to establish what's what's of essence. And you've heard some incredible words here. You've heard about the saints, blessed, chosen, predestined, holy, blameless, adopted. These are all words that we're going to dive into today. And I just want to tell you that not every word can go to the depths that you might want. And that's why we're going to meet in life groups and buy commentaries and really try and get to the bottom of it. But if I had to ask you a question, if Paul's trying to give his distilled wisdom, this is the question. It's like, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Perhaps a better question is, who does God think you are? If you're not a Christ follower, you're going to get this, this message of, of the essence of what it means to be a Christ follower. And if you're a Christ follower sitting in the Cape Town right now, and you're exhausted, and you're going, Shh, I don't know which way is up, which way is down, i put it to you that who God thinks you are is an incredible question that you should answer this morning. 
This book, which we've now finally got to, has got this incredible theme. It's got many, but the one that kind of keeps coming up is how there's a unity found in Jesus Christ unlike any other. That whilst we can look at differences and notice differences in South Africans, we're very good at doing that, and it can wreak havoc politically and in our relationships with each other. He's saying, no, there's a unity that's, that's found exclusively in Jesus Christ that he alone can provide. And so for three chapters, what, what the book does is it speaks about our identity. It speaks about who we are, who God thinks we are. And then for the next three chapters, it then sort of has this word, therefore. It breaks up and says, in light of who you are, here's what you should be getting up to. But although it might look like these are two separate things, they're not at all. They go together in their thinking. Belief and behavior are not separate. It's as if Paul's saying, guys, there's some wrong beliefs you've got. I want to break those, and I want to reset them in a plaster Paris kind of way such that once they've reset, you're going to behave totally differently. They're not separate. In fact, they're very linked. Ideas have consequences. What we think will shape us. And so Paul's saying, I need you to think correctly about who you are so that what you do then, your belief and your behavior are coordinated and congruent. And as we're reflecting on this passage, the word identity came up because that's what Paul wants to establish. He wants to establish identity. He wants us to know who we are so that we can be who we are. And I suppose in my life, I could probably put my life into kind of two buckets. The one bucket would be when I have an identity that I want to achieve, an identity achieved, or an identity received. Do you understand the difference? An identity achieved. There's, there's so much freedom in the world right now, and we live in a culture of achievement. One that says, man, like, what do you do for a living? What have you done? How many triathlons? How many marathons? How many, you know, there's just this culture of achievement. What Paul's trying to establish is he looks at these people he loves, he's saying, man, there's a... There's an identity that you can receive. There's a truth about who you made in the image of God that you should live out of that place. And in chatting to Rigby, he's kind of common ground before giving this message. He had you know, his classic kind of uh, wisdom, and he kind of said to me, oh, the thing with identity is there's three possible sources. The one source is you can outsource, outsource your identity. You basically look and say, guys, who do you say that I am? Who do you say um, is to be uh, you know, celebrated? What, what does an impressive person do? I want to be impressed. I want to have a good identity. And you outsource it. A way to outsource it is to kind of ask the question, who's paying the most money, right? Because if they're paying the most money, that must be the most valuable thing. So I'll, I'll do whatever gets the biggest paycheck. That must be what I do. That's what gives me my identity. There's all kinds of ways we can outsource identity. And I was struck this week by this photo from uh, Everest. I don't know if you guys saw this, but taken this week, there was a queue of over 300 people. I don't know if you can see that, all trying to get up to the top of Everest. And in fact, tragically, some people lost their lives in the queue to get to the top of Everest through hypothermia. And I was trying to unpack this. Like, what is going on? I think as a society, if someone said, I climbed Everest, everyone's like, Chase! Speak to us. Be our leader. You're the king. The culture of achievement celebrates this kind of thing. So much so that over 300 people are queued up, waiting to get on there and lose their life in the queue. And we might look at them and go, that's crazy. But to what extent have we lined up in a queue saying, that's the thing that's going to get me an identity worthwhile. That's going to be my source of identity. So we can outsource. That's one way of going through. The other way is insource. Uh, How you insource your identity is these are the stories you tell yourself. These are the things you've taken on for yourself. And in many ways, instead of impressive things, sometimes we have what I would like to call an inner critic. Someone who kind of says, oh, you'll never be good at that. You've got limiting assumptions about yourself. And so you're, when you're in source, often you can actually just be like, oh man, you're not good at anything. And what you tell yourself can be incredibly limiting. I can't spend too much time on this. You're outsourced, you're insourced. But maybe you've heard this advice, which has been, oh, just, just don't, don't, don't believe what anyone tells you about yourself. Like just, you know, the haters are going to hate, the critics are going to critic, just go for it. Have you ever tried to live like that? Have you ever tried to not care 
about what anyone thinks, I'd suggest it's impossible. So the, the choice is rather not, not if we're going to believe what other people think, but who are we going to believe? We're going to choose whose opinion is going to be loudest to us. No one's neutral in this. And that's why instead of outsourcing or insourcing, we should upsource, upsource our source of identity. Look to the one who made us, and what does he have to say about us? We need, to, we need to think about this now. And perhaps you're in a storm at the moment, and this is what's going to anchor you and help you. But I suspect hopefully most of us are not in that storm. And the time to put up a tent, right, is before the storm hits. And so let's hope, let's do that. Let's find out who our identity is and go deep as a community. So before the storm hits, we've got a tent up about an identity received, not just an identity achieved. So we're going to dive into these words of saints and blessed and chosen and predestined, holy and blameless, adopted. And I trust that by the end of looking at this, we're going to have that upsourced view firm in our mind. So let's just focus on the first two uh, verses. Sorry, um, there was a little joke there about Lion's Head, which I thought was quite funny. Lion's Head saying, hey, Everest, I feel you, bro. Anyone who's uh, tried to go up Lion's Head, uh, the Lion's Head sunset selfies on the top of the mountain. Uh, we've got our own equivalents on our own back garden there. Okay, so um, let's have a look at the first two uh, verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you, peace from our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So right up front, I want to just focus on these identity shifts, which you might not even realize have happened, but which are right there at the center. And let's just start with that word Paul. Paul didn't start his life as Paul. He started as Saul, as we saw last week. He's a Jewish scholar steeped in Judaism. He kept the law perfectly and was so incensed by this in his words, cult that had risen up amongst this false Messiah, Jesus Christ, that he would go on murderous journeys, bringing those who claimed to be Christ to execution state. He was was opposed, and he met Jesus Christ on the road uh, to Damascus. He had his life turned upside down. Instead of going on these murderous missions, he's been the one who's gone on these missions to bring the message of Jesus Christ to the whole world. And that's why he's writing the letter in Corinth and in Antioch. All over the world, he's gone, and he's brought this message. And what's so fascinating about this identity change is that he turned from Saul to Paul. And interestingly, he was never the one who received that change from Christ. Christ didn't say, hey, you need to change your name. He himself changed his name. Paul and Saul are actually interchangeable. Saul is the Jewish version of his name, and and Paul is the Greek version. And he chose to be identified by the Greek version because he'd so identified with with this new identity he'd found in Christ, to go to the Greeks, to go and spread his message out. So you might think I'm contradicting my view if I say, no, it's an identity received. But I want you to see what happens when we receive this identity in Christ. We don't stay static, like, okay, I've received this identity and I understand. No, it, it wells up inside of our lives such that we're prepared to say, I'm changing my name. Whatever it takes to make it easier for others to get the good news and to be set free. So straight away, just in one word, you can see an identity that's been shifted from Saul to Paul and who now is under the will of God. He's just, he's just going for it and even writing this letter reminding them of this change. And then notice what he calls them. These people from Ephesus, he calls them saints. He calls those that, that have been set apart for the work of God. These are the same people that were worshiping that massive statue. They were the ones gathering in that temple. They were the ones buying and selling various uh, trinkets that were related to this whole system. And now notice how they're phrased. They're called saints. And they're now referred to as faithful in Christ Jesus. The whole city is starting to get turned upside down, much like we would long in the city of Cape Town for people to be set free, for people to find unity at a whole nother level. It's what Paul's reminding them has happened. And of course, the question is, how? How did it happen? And he answers it right then below by mentioning the words, grace and peace, grace and peace. This is how a city got turned around. 
the message being that God came looking for us in his grace and mercy. And over and over again, you'll see the phrase, uh, Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's mentioned over 20 times, just in this first little stint of the book. Over and over again, it speaks about this name that has authority, the presence of God, this rescuing God. And it's saying that everything flows out of this reality. How a people can get changed from Saul to Paul, from, from sinners to saints, is not through anything they've done, but through the mercy and grace and peace found in Christ. He's the source. He's the source. And I try to think of an analogy. And the best I could come up with, we live um, near Mully Point, and there's a great ice cream shop called Creamery. There's some resonance with this. And there's creamery ice cream, which is very expensive, but it's outstanding. It's a, it's a source of good ice cream. You can go many other places to get ice cream. You can go to McDonald's. You can go to Steers. But you were made for creamery. And, <laughs> and you might hear this, and you might say, Paul, that's such an exclusive claim, and that seems like so narrow-minded. But the truth is that, that that is the source. That is where you go for good ice cream. And so in many ways, you've got Jesus Christ here being described as the source, as the one saying, this is the source of life. And you can try and go to other places and find it. But there's an exclusive claim here. In a city that was incredibly good at worshiping multiple gods, you would look at that and say, but Paul, that's never going to work. How can, how can this exclusive claim take over such a cosmopolitan city? Surely they're going to rather prefer that system where there's so many choices of gods and they can just go around choosing whichever ice cream they want, that there's this ultimate freedom that you can just go and go and go and go. See, why it worked and why we can look back thousands of years later is that the claim that Jesus was the exclusive source of life was true. That people found that to be true. That they tasted all this freedom and they were left hungry, they were left empty, they were left thirsty. And that this incredible claim that seemed like it would never prevail in such a cosmopolitan city was the very claim that has turned the world upside down. It didn't work the way you might have thought. Jesus Christ came to bring life and he's done that through the generations. See, the the other writing of Paul in the book of Romans, which also sort of captures a lot of what we read about in the book of Ephesians, speaks about how all of us go through life, in a sense, married to the law. There's a relationship in our hearts. Even if we don't believe in God, we, we have a sort of expectation in our lives of how we should be living, and we notice the gap between how we should be living and how we do live. And that's why this culture of achievement, just trying to achieve, we always can kind of achieve more. There are more things we could do, and so it stays alive in us, this culture of achievement. We keep going, and there's always the gap. All of us fall short. And the way Paul describes it, he says, it's almost like we've all been married to the law. It's like a spouse. We, we can't get away. We're in this marriage together. And the spouse tells us, here's where you should be. And we just never quite get there. The spouse never lifts a finger. And we're married until death do us part. And so we can't get a divorce. We're kind of stuck in this relationship. And, and this is where religion comes in. Us always trying to get there. Never being able to. How do we get out of this? And this is the incredible message of the book of Romans. It speaks about us how, yes, you can't, you can't get divorced. But you know what? You can't die to the law. You can die, you can get out of this marriage, and when you die, what happens to you? You get placed in Christ. You get placed in Christ over and over again. It speaks about being under the law and now dying to the law, so that obligation falls away, and now we are in Christ. And when we're in Christ, we find a whole new identity to live out. That's the incredible claim, that we are now in Christ, raised in Christ, and covered by Christ. We're going to be delving into this more and more. It's mentioned over 20 times, like I say in the book, but you've got to get this, that when we declare good news, we don't declare, here's where you should be, go and achieve it, and good luck. What we declare is that there's a new belief that should grip your mind and your heart. There's a new way of understanding the world, a, a grace that has come from God, a God who's come and rescued us, that it's an identity received, not achieved. And then when you receive it, oh, you go out as those who are holy and blameless, as those that are saints. You live out of that identity. Your behaviors line up with what you know to be 
receive from God. And he empowers you by his spirit. You're dead to the law and you're raised in Christ. And how does this leave Paul? He's just done the intro. Those are just two verses. How does that leave him? You know what? He can't contain himself. He breaks away kind of from the letter at this point, And he goes for the longest sentence recorded in scripture. This is it. 202 words. We have to put some full stops in, in English, kind of break it down. But in the Greek, it just flows. 202 words. I'm going to do half of it and Greg will pick up the rest next week. This is Paul just flowing out a praise exclamation about who God is. Let's read it again together from verse 3 about the grace and the peace of God. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. This is good news. That's why Paul is bursting out. He's not standing there going, jolly good show. You know, it's not this muted kind of surface level. It's something deep inside of him that says, man, this identity is something incredible. And we know it's an outburst of praise. That, that phrase, blessed be the God, is, is how Jewish people at that time would start this, their kind of worship to God. He's saying, you know what? There's something fundamental that's happened to me. I've, I've received an identity. I've been chosen. And that identity is upsourced. It's, it's who God has made me to be. And I want to get in line with that. It's acknowledging that God is at work and his presence is here, that the king of the kingdom has made himself known. And men, if I could address you uh, for a moment, this kind of like outburst, this kind of level of joy, this level of emotion, you might be saying, Paul, that's not me. That's not me. And my simple retort would be, is, are you sure? Are you sure? Because when Liverpool came back against Barcelona, were you kind of neutral around it? Like, hey, that was quite cool. When Chabalala scored that first goal in 2010, were you like, jolly good show, jolly good show? I suspect all of us have seen something of value where we've just gone, whoa, like that is incredible. And yet when it comes to this book, that's where, that's where Paul's going. He's not going, hey, some thoughts for you. He's saying, let this shape you. Let this be the identity you receive. And remember where Paul is when he's writing this, guys. He's in prison. He's in prison. Of all people, he could be going, yeah, look, I'm really hoping this works out one day. Currently, underwhelming experience here, you know. Uh, but hey, just hang in there. One day, maybe it's going to be awesome. You know, this kind of deferred uh, gratification kind of mindset. No, he's saying, right now, right now, as I sit in prison, as I write this, I'm going, wow. How good is God? I've received this identity. I'm not trying to achieve anything. And I think the word that I really want to focus on is this word chosen. This word chosen, it's kind of right in the center of the script. He chose us in him. That the fact that you've died to the law and that you're in him is because he's chosen you. He's set his, his sights on you. That it's a God uh, initiative and it's a God completed event. And the big headline really to each and every one of us, which might shock us in the city of Cape Town this year, is that we're not at the center of the world that God is, that a culture of achievement, an identity based on achievement, places us certainly at the center, and we try and make it happen. But an identity received says, well, well, where do I get that from, and who initiated it, and who is the one who's ruling, and it's God. And of course, the next big question is, well, what is that God like? What is that creator like? And those words, grace and peace, wash over us. This is a God of grace, of mercy. This is a God of peace, a God of shalom, wholeness, completeness, well-being. There's not a single one of us that deserves to be chosen. All have gone astray. All of us could never reach the, 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 the standards we even set for our own lives, let alone the standard God sets for us. And it's by grace that we've been radically included. Do you know what that means? It means that it's not the efficient 
that get God. It's not those that have like worked their lives out perfectly, that like, there we go, I'm now sorted and God wants me on his team. It's not the powerful that get God. No, it's, it's those who get grace. And you see, the major thing which helped me understand all this is if, if I kind of said, well, well why, why are you, why are you um, part of this group in Ephesus that, that are aligned to Jesus? Why are you guys changing the city up? What is the reason? And, and if you kept asking that question, why, 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 why? If you eventually got to someone saying, well, ultimately it's because I kind of cleaned up my act a bit, or maybe it's because I stopped buying to the temple. If you, if you kept asking a question why, and the, and the answer was very self-centered, what you were essentially saying is, well, God's chosen me because of my actions and what I've done essentially would have been, I've achieved this. I've achieved what God has actually meant for me to receive. And so whilst we might struggle with this word chosen and we might grip, be gripped by it, what I'd encourage us to do is to understand that what this grace means is there's radical inclusion, not just for the powerful and the efficient and the sordid, but for those who God has chosen, not by anything they've done, but by what he has done. And if you're new to faith, I hope this God-centered understanding would start to grip you as you start to look to him and say, God, I want to know the glorious implications that it has for my life. And we've got five fingers on our hands, and I'm going to quickly fly through five things that we see. We can't go deep in all of them, but I want, to, I want you to see them. The first implication, number one, is that we've been chosen for blessing. We're not just chosen and it's like, there you go. You're chosen for blessing. There's something for you to do. And one of the things, before you even get to doing, is just receiving blessing. Do you see it there in the middle of the passage? That um, it says that we've been blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. That's not some, it's, it's spiritual blessing from A to Z, all the way through. And how do we get every spiritual blessing? Well, it's over and over again. In verse 3, it speaks of us being in Christ. In verse 4, it says, in Him. In verse 6, it says, in the Beloved. And even verse 7, if you sneak across, it says, in Him we have redemption. It just over and over again says, in Christ, in Christ, in Him. Do you see what's going on here? In Jesus, we don't just have a king to obey. We have a king to obey, which we celebrate. We also have an example to follow. We also have a savior to be grateful for. But do you notice what Paul is saying here? He's saying there's more to it. That when we rest in him, we are in fact put in him. We're put in him so that everything he has is now yours. We can look at the word adoption, which we'll see a bit later. The word redemption, which is coming up. The word inheritance. The word hope, the, the Holy Spirit. I'm hoping you understand just the power of what every spiritual bless, blessing implies. I mean, let's just go back to Paul, right? Do you know who Paul is? Paul is Saul who went murdering people around that region. He's now encountered Jesus. His identity has changed. He's, he's now Paul. But do you know that he would have been bumping into many people whose relatives and dear friends he would have had killed? He would have been bumping into them and them going, oh, you, are you, yeah, I, I had a brother, I had a father, I had a cousin, until you came along. How do you live with a guilt like that? How do you do community with a group like that? How is that even possible? But he has Paul moving forward confidently, able to receive blessing, saying to them, there is now no condemnation. How can he be so confident? How can he get through all of that? I'll tell you how. It's in Romans 8 verse 1 where he writes, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, being in Christ, receiving every spiritual blessing is a game changer. Christ is, is not just in him. He's in Christ. Paul was in effect saying, in myself, I'm poor. In myself, I have nothing. But in Christ, I am rich. In Christ, I have everything. Do you know the power of that? Can you see the power of that working in you? If you're feeling that there's something in your past that disqualifies you from being ever part of a spiritual community, the best you can do is kind of be on the fringes. Look at Paul. 
Look at the, the weakness, but yet the power that Christ provides. Every spiritual blessing. So you're chosen for blessing. The other one is you're chosen before the foundation of the world. That there's a God who created this world, who knew in advance what was going to happen, and he has a plan. Do you recognize how sometimes functionally we deny the fact that we've been chosen before the foundation of the world? It's there. He's telling us before the foundation of the world was created, he knew you. He, he moved towards you. I think sometimes what can happen is we think, oh, you know, God had a plan and then we messed it up. And ever since then, he's been scrambling to try and figure out what to do. That the whole world is kind of chaotic and God's kind of trying to make up for past mistakes. And, and you know, the world's a mess and we've kind of lost respect and trust in God. And that's ultimately what the devil has, has constantly been whispering to us. You can't trust God. God does not have your best interests at heart. God is not someone who, who has enough power or enough goodness. Take things into your own hands. Identity achieved rather than identity received. What Paul's reminding them as he's distilled his wisdom down is, no, you've been chosen, and you've been chosen before the foundation of the world. Does it give you confidence that as you go out into the day, as you receive this identity, every spiritual blessing, that this is not something that is getting made up as you go, but there's something of a confidence that God is with you, that he's trustworthy, and that he's chosen you. And there's a trajectory for your life. What's that trajectory? It's you've chosen for every spiritual blessing. You've chosen before the foundation of the world. Number three, you've chosen to be holy and blameless. Did you see it there? Did you see this recognition that there's a path for you to go from where you are currently to where you will be? That we should be holy and blameless before him. That there's a, there's a choosing, there's a predestination that's taking place. That we've been chosen to be adopted as sons in Christ. And so you might think, Paul, you know, I don't know where my life's going. I, I don't know what side's up. I don't know which side's down. And this should be a word to you that God has chosen you to be holy and blameless. That this isn't a fickle God. If you went to Ephesus, you would have noticed some of the other gods, if you noticed their beliefs, they sometimes had meetings and they would sometimes change each other's minds. And they would be fickle and they would kind of go, oh, no, we thought that, but now it's changed. And that was kind of how the system worked in those days. And here comes this glorious message of a God who said, no, 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 I've chosen you before the foundation of the earth, and I've got a path for you, a holy and blameless. When my spirit takes residence, darkness will flee, light will enter, that I will start to renovate you from the inside out, that I, I love you the way you are, but I'm not, I love you so much I'm gonna, not going to leave you the way you are. This should be a great source of encouragement. If you're finding opposition in your life, if you're finding that you're struggling and, you, and you're not understanding that there is a trajectory for your life that a God who is not fickle has set for you, that he has, has predestined you for this path of holiness and blamelessness, that the good work he's begun in you, he will bring to completion. And notice that it's not according to your purpose, but notice right up the front when Paul wrote, by the will of God, it's God who starts this work and who ends this work. If it's going to happen in you, start cooperating now. Don't see this as some kind of a identity you need to achieve. But see, this is an identity you receive and then you live out of. You've chosen to be holy and blameless. There's a fourth one, which is that you're chosen for adoption. There are many implications that we could see about being in Christ, but this one is massive, that you've been predestined for adoption, that you are now in the family, that there is now an inheritance, that there is now access to the Father. You know that there are many powerful people in the world and you have to get into diaries months in advance and there's all kinds of access issues, access control, safety control. But I'll tell you what, if you're in the family, if you're a son, the door's open, you're in. You have incredible access. This is what he's talking about. He's saying that the God of the universe has adopted you in, that you are now in Christ. You have access to his presence, the love of the Father. And you're not just described as servants, as we've reflected already. You're described as a son. And for the ladies out there who are getting a bit 
um, maybe upset with me, the, the promise of being a son in that culture would have meant full inheritance, would have meant uh, uh, unbelievable blessing. And what he's saying is, whether you're male, whether you're female, that's the inheritance. This isn't something that anyone's excluded from. If you're chosen in him, you have got incredible inheritance as one who's adopted. No longer a servant, but as a son. And then finally, you've, you've been chosen for every special blessing before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless for adoption. And now finally, you are chosen for worship. And we're going to respond with one song soon. Why is all of this happening? Do you see that one verse that tells us all of this stuff, your identity that you've received? It's to the praise of his glorious grace. That all of this is getting told to us. All of the implications. We've received a new identity. And you know what happens? It bursts out of us as we, as we celebrate the great, glorious grace that God has for us. Many ways that Paul could have ended that sentence. He could have said, uh, praise of his glorious power. Praise of his glorious holiness. Praise of his glorious um, set-apartness. Praise of his glorious power. I mean, there's so many ways he could have finished that sentence. But what does God say should be at the center of our understandings to the power or praise of his glorious grace? God wants grace to be at the center. He wants the focus to be on him, that this identity would be upsourced, that we would come to him humbly because there's nothing in us that was worthy but yet confidently because we know that before the foundation of the earth, he's made us to be holy and blameless. He's adopted us. There's an inheritance. There's redemption. There's hope. There's the Holy Spirit. There's another whole half to this message, which we'll touch next week. There's so much that is found in him that it overflows in us in worship. This grace he gives us is not just you know, little bite-sized chunks as we go along. It is lavish. It is abundant. It is overwhelming. It is generous. So again, my question to you, as I call the band up, is who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Is it, uh, are you insourcing your identity? Is it the voice inside of you that speaks louder than any other? I wrote an exam for the first time a couple of months ago. Well, not for the first time, but for a long time. And uh, let me tell you, the first two questions were tricky. It was an exam to marry people, to do the official thing. The first two questions were tricky. And you know, first question, you're like, oh, I should have known that. Second question, you're like, Am I really going to fail this thing? And that little voice inside of yourself, right? That little voice inside of yourself is yourself, talking to yourself. And what does that sound like? Are you kind of constantly beating yourself? Are you stuck in this achievement culture? Or are you, are you, is there something else? Maybe you, you got sick of that and you're saying, okay, who does my mother think I am? Who does my spouse think I am? Maybe that's not a good, I don't know. But you outsource it because you're just kind of like, who I speak to when I speak to myself, it gets messy. But maybe I've outsourced it. Maybe I'm trying to find out. Should I climb Everest? Is that what impressive people do? What should I do? let's still all those voices this morning and let's upsource our identity and say, God, I want to hear what it means to be in you, to be changed by you, to be shaped by you. If I had to ask you, are you a Christian or are you a Christ follower? And your answer was, I'm trying, I'm trying really hard. You know, sometimes, sometimes I'm not, fundamentally I'd have to stop you and say, whoa, whoa, I think you've misunderstood. I think you've taken a culture of achievement and an identity of achievement and you've just placed that over a message of good news, a message of grace. And you're telling me all this stuff, and I'm going, now I just fundamentally think you've, you've actually imbibed a lot more of what it would have been like in the city of Ephesus or in the city of Cape Town than you have for what it looks like in the kingdom of God. That there's a grace received. There's a God who's come to rescue you. I don't think you've understood how glorious this grace is. That you say, am I a Christian? Yeah, it's unbelievable. <laughs> me, like I can't believe it. I mess it up over and over again, but he's chosen me. He's, he's set me apart to the foundation of the earth. His grace comes to me. He's holy and blameless. 
And so maybe you're sitting here and saying, how do I know if I've been chosen? How do I know if I'm included? How do I know if I have every special, spiritual blessing? Well, in verse 6 it tells us that it's to the praise of His glorious grace. And you know that this phrase comes up three more times. We're going to see it again in verse 12. We're going to see it again in verse 14 next week. It's not just that you believe it, but it's glorious to you. It's beautiful to you. It just catches you. It's undeserved presence of God. It catches your imagination. It captures your heart. You praise it. You adore it. You sing about it. Will you stand with me to your feet? We're going to sing in response now. And if you want to know if, if Christ is at work in your heart, it would be because there's something of His grace that has captured you, that you would describe yourself as being under the law, not able to achieve it. But today you're saying, I, I want grace to define my life. I want Christ's redemption, that he died for me and placed me in him. As we mentioned already when we were worshiping at the start, there's an opportunity now to respond, to say, God, I'm, I'm dying to the law. I'm dying to my sin. And I'm coming to you as my substitute, as my redeemer and as my savior. And we're going to be speaking a song now about the beauty of Christ's name, the beauty of his presence, the beauty of his work amongst us, that we're a group of people that have upsourced our relationship. It's not about us. It's about what he says in our lives. I'd love to pray for us, and then we'll worship together. God, as we dive into your book, may our identities, which are often so muddled, start to be shaped by you. God, we long to be those that allow your words to wash over us, that we've, in you, got every spiritual blessing, and we've been chosen before the foundations of the earth. God, that we're holy and blameless. That's the path you've got us on. One day in eternity, we'll know that fully, but for right now, we can anticipate your Holy Spirit's work in our lives. We've been chosen for adoption. We've, right now, God, choosing to worship you, to make much of you. So by your spirit now, we invite you to come and shape us as a community, a group of people who fall short of your glory, but who are grateful recipients of your grace. Come and move amongst us, Holy Spirit, as we worship you now.